I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. There's nothing for me like standing on a misty mountainside in North Borneo, looking at a giant pitcher plant, for example, or trekking across a desert in Israel and Palestine in pursuit of a parasitic plant. It was like a waterfall, so, but instead of water, it was foliage. It just tumbled down so carelessly down this stone wall. And I vowed then to recreate that in my own garden. Most people, they just drop them off. Once the flowers drop, they just throw them away. And so it was really easy for me to get a lot of <laughs> to get a lot of orchids and find them at dumpsters because, you know, most people just don't know that an orchid, when it drops its flowers, isn't dead. This is Gardening with the RHS. I'm Guy Barter. In today's show, we're all about stepping outside the garden gate getting inspiration and ideas from places you might not expect. From overseas revelations to saving plants from the bin, we hear from gardeners who like to think outside the box. Plus, we'll be getting words of wisdom from some of the best horticultural brains in the business. The RHS Gardening Advice Team. If there's a bad case of sort of blanket weed or duckweed starting to net that out to improve the water, what I expect it is just a, a sort of algae problem which is easily treatable. But we begin with Dr Chris Farragut. As part of his job at the University of Oxford's Botanic Garden, he's fortunate enough to travel the world in pursuit of the unique and extraordinary. His obsession with carnivorous plants has got him weaving through dense jungle, clambering up cliff tops, and sauntering through the Sahara. There's always the chance that you'll find something that you weren't expecting when you're out plant hunting. So um, I've joined some botanists in the Middle East and we've trekked across the deserts there when I was researching a book. Deserts are particularly interesting, I find, because depending on the patterns of rainfall every winter, you never quite know what's going to appear in the spring. And I remember there was one valley that we were trekking through and we found a really rare allium, it was called Allium asherianum, and it hadn't flowered there for probably about 15 to 20 years. So you really never know what you're going to encounter. I do get asked what the biggest pitcher plant is quite a lot, actually. And it's Nepenthes raja, the king pitcher plant. And it grows just on one mountain, which is Mount Kinabalu in the north of Borneo, which is a really special place because it's a, a botanical paradise. So it's one of these places that is dripping with orchids, epiphytes and pitcher plants. 
And it's somewhere that I had a lifelong ambition to visit. And, and in my early 20s, I made my first ascent up the mountain. There's a place called Musalau, which was an old landslip where hundreds of these pitcher plants, Nepenthes raja, grow, a whole grove of these monstrous looking plants. And honestly, I kid you not, the traps, the pitchers of these plants are about a foot long. They're really, really gargantuan. And they're famous for sometimes having in their contents the bodies of drowned mammals, um, like small rats, for example. Now, it's a bit more complicated than that. There's actually a little tree shrew, which looks a bit like a squirrel, that lives on the mountain. And it feeds on the nectar that the pitcher plant produces, which in most pitcher plants attracts insects. And as the little tree shrew feeds, more often than not, it goes to the toilet in the pitcher, uh, which of course is a source of uh, nutrients, because as your listeners will know, uh, manure is the best thing for plants, right? And so this sort of instant packet of fertilizer really benefits the plant. And it may be that once or twice, uh, one of these small tree shrews has sort of fallen in and couldn't escape and has drowned, and therefore it makes up some of the prey contents for the plant. So inadvertently, sometimes these pitcher plants can feed on small mammals, although that's not really what they generally attract. I'm very interested in what plants can do for us and why they're useful. And so I'll give you an example of some research that I've been doing on an Nepenthes pitcher plant. So that's one of these carnivorous insect-eating plants. Now, these plants have a slippery rim on the surface of their trap that insects that are attracted to the plant tumble off and fall into the abyss of enzymes in the pitcher that then make up the prey of the plant. And we were really interested in the functional properties of this slippery surface. And so we looked a little bit more closely at this and the surface is made up of a series of parallel ridges and it's covered in a condensed film of water vapour which basically makes it very slippy and that's what leads the insects to fall in. We were looking a bit more closely at how fluids move along the surface with these parallel ridges and the lubricating film of liquid that sits on top of it. And we were exploring how this might have applications in technology, for example, microfluidic devices where small amounts of water are moving around within a technological device. Um, and it could have all sorts of applications and also anti-fogging systems or systems that um, channel water in, into a certain area. And so we were looking at how we can deploy um, these wonderful services that exist in the plant kingdom all around us for technological uses. And I should say at this point that that's where self-cleaning paint and glass came from. It's from a lotus leaf that has a, a surface that water beads off of when it lands and it carries dirt as, as it goes. And so it's a sort of hardwired self-cleaning mechanism that the lotus leaf has, that beautiful leaf that we're so familiar with that grows impeccably clean above the muddy river beneath that it sprouts from and that's because of this self-cleaning mechanism that it has and that's as I say where self-cleaning paint and glass came from. So I'm really interested in what we can learn from plants and how it can be used um, for good. I've always been passionate about plants. I think ever since I was a kid working with plants has sort of been my destiny and I love also being a scientist who works with plants because science is all around asking questions and finding out how things work. And ever since I was young, I remember looking at plants and thinking, 
why are you like that? And how does this work? And really, that's what my job is all about today is answering those questions. So finding out more about how plants work and how they've come to be how they are. So I'm very, very fortunate to be able to do that. It's always interesting to hear how plants grow. They're much more complicated than people give them credit for. It's really interesting that Chris has looked into this and will be sharing his insights over the next few months. We're staying overseas now with Mediterranean obsessive journalist and author Patty Barron. For her, it was a special moment abroad that made her fall head over heels for a particular herb. Prostrate rosemary is the kind of tumbling rosemary that cascades over plants or over low walls. It summons up the spirit of the Mediterranean instantly. I'm smiling as I tell you how it makes me feel. It makes me feel happy and I can smell it in my head if that makes sense. <laughs> when did I first encounter it? trailing over the walls of a garden in Provence. It was what they call un coup de foudre, instant love. It was like a waterfall, so in, but instead of water, it was foliage. It just tumbled down so carelessly down this stone wall. It was just beautiful. It was a moment in time. And I vowed then to recreate that in my own garden, which I did. And it was just as effective. And it brought back that moment. It's basically a foliage plant with those, well, long trailing stems of short grey-green spikes on it that smell fabulous, that very strong, pungent, distinctive rosemary fragrance. And if you grow it in the sun, then it literally gets smothered in lavender blue or, depending on the variety, ice blue or even pink flowers. How can I describe that smell? It's very aromatic. It's very fresh. It's very uplifting. And it also reminds me a little of lamb on a Sunday roast. <laughs> for obvious reasons. I love the fact that you can clip it for cooking. I love its color. I love the way it's so tactile. I think it's a gorgeous plant and I'd never be without it. I'll always love it. And also there's a slightly sentimental attachment as well because it's rosemary's for remembrance. So it reminds me of certain people who are no longer with me. So it's kind of maybe a little bit romantic and sentimental as well. Prostrate rosemary is such a fine plant. No wonder Patty's mad about it. I love hearing about people's special memories of plants. For me, it's the apple. I grew up in an apple orchard in the West Country. Wisley's Apple Orchard is my favourite place. And I've even got nine apples of my own, three in the back garden and six on the allotment. So I'm pretty well provided with my favourite plant. Our next guest shows his passion 
in a very interesting way. My name is Terry Richardson, also known as the Black Thumb, and I rescue and revive orchids from local dumpsters in Los Angeles. Yes, you heard that right. Terry Richardson doesn't just get his inspiration from countries far away or beautiful florals displays, but from the trash can. He spends his time rescuing beautiful orchids from owners who thought they were lost causes. He applies love, care and expertise to bring them back from the brink. I just had to know more about where his journey to becoming a plant paramedic began. We have Penelope, who is my very first orchid. I also have an orchid by the name of Squirt. It's a mini Phalaenopsis orchid. I also have an orchid named Sunshine. Flowers are bright yellow. I have an orchid named Prince because the flowers are like purple and they remind me of purple rain. They even have like little like purple specks on them. So they remind me of purple rain. So naturally it's named Prince. And then I have a princess poppy and a queen poppy. Plants were not really a part of my life for the first 31 years or so of my life. I definitely grew up in a household where like fake plants were all over the house. Like my mom had fake like ivy and fake daisies and lilies all over the house because we literally couldn't keep plants alive. We'd get flowers or something or we, you know, someone would gift us a plant and you know what happens. Life gets crazy. You know, no one waters it. You look up a week later and you're like, hold on, it's dead. And then at that point, you're like, oh, let me see if I can try to revive this thing. And it's too far gone. And that was like kind of the cycle. And so my mom was just like, bump this. We're just going to put these fake plants in the house because they never die. (laughs) How I got into gardening, it was really when my, well, she was my fiance at the time, but now my wife, when we moved in together a few years ago, we got a bunch of like housewarming gifts that were plants primarily succulents, which are typically pretty hardy. And I was just like, you know what? Let me just see if I can keep these alive. And that's kind of really how my passion for plants started. And then it obviously branched out into orchids. And now that's like, that is my jam. Like that is exactly like, I love everything about what I do with orchids. It's awesome. We were gifted an orchid right when we moved in. And we immediately killed that orchid. Like, that orchid did not make it. (laughs) May it rest in peace. But what happened was, in the process of us killing that orchid, I stumbled upon the first orchid that I rescued. Her name is Penelope. And I was like, you know what? Let me just take this inside. Let me see. Because I was like, man, I really don't want this to be, like, the failure. Because at this point, like, I was really starting to kind of get into a place where I was like, okay, I think I can do something with plants. And I'll be honest with you, like when I rescued Penelope, she wasn't in the best conditions because like, again, our apartment was pretty dark, doesn't get a ton of like air circulation. It's not the best conditions for an orchid, but I made sure that I watered it. And over the course of 18 months, after 18 months, it finally flowered. And I was just like floored that something as simple as me just watering it consistently even though it took me a year and a half for it to flower that it actually did it and that just really piqued my interest and was like okay I can do this and then from there I just started really doing my research and typically in the spring especially here in the states this is like prime orchid gifting season and so most people they just drop them off once the flowers drop they just throw them away and so 
it was really easy for me to get a lot of <laughs> to get a lot of orchids and find them at dumpsters because you know most people just don't know that an orchid when it drops its flowers isn't dead you know what I love most about orchids is just the variation that you get with the colors of flowers, how the leaves grow, whether they rebloom on the original spike or stem or, or, or if you have to chop it down. Like there's just so much variability within the species of orchids. I love it. So for me, like when I rescue an orchid, it's like a pleasant surprise because I typically don't get them when they have flowers. It's a waiting game for me. So it's also cool so I have a thing where I, I, I don't name them until they flower because you don't really know what their personality is until you can see the full potential of the plant so the first thing I look at when I see an orchid laying at a dumpster or at a nurse's station at work is I want to check it for bugs or any signs of infection or rot there are some common bugs that you want to be on the lookout for. One of those are mealybugs, which can be a problem, but it's a relatively minor problem if you act on it appropriately. And then you also want to check for like spider mites, which is kind of a more serious issue. And you probably want to leave that orchid right where it is if you have spider mites on it or if you notice spider mites. And then the other thing you want to look at is the root system. Do the roots look healthy? Are the leaves firm and not flimsy? Are they still green? Are they showing any signs of rot or infection? And then once I have kind of checked all of those boxes, then from there, I will bring it into our home. And even then, I like to quarantine those plants that I rescue initially. And then as far as just like general orchid care, once they've passed the can I rescue you test, you really want to focus on watering consistently but you also have to be careful, too, because you can definitely overwater your orchid. There's an adage that says, if you're thinking about watering your orchid, just wait one more day. My orchid care represents, for me personally, self-care, but hopefully for others, you know, we're all reclamation projects in some way or in some form, and we can focus our energy and our attention and be consistent and be patient with ourselves and love on ourselves and communicate with ourselves, which are all principles that I use with orchids, then I think we can all start to really make some progress towards making the changes that we want to see in our world. There are a lot of life lessons that I've learned through orchid care, things like patience, consistency, a little bit of discipline, communication as well, like talking to your plants and, and just showing them love and being willing to take care of another living thing and seeing it grow and develop and evolve is pretty cool. Terry Richardson, also known as the Black Thumb. I'm all for being daring with plant choices, but what about when things don't quite work out? Plants do have minds of their own, and sometimes even the best laid plans can go awry. Things that have come back to bite me include Free Sisters planting, where apparently, in the Andes, growers there plant maize, and up the maze they climb beans, and around the base of the maze ramble squashes and pumpkins. 
Whenever I try that, it all goes horribly wrong. The maize grows well until the beans smother them, and then the whole lot falls down and smothers the pumpkins. I think you need an Andean climate with high light levels to make it work. But I expect I'll try again sometime. Even a fool can learn from their mistakes, they say. So, given the vagaries of plants, it's always good to know that our advisors are at hand to help you through any tricky horticultural problems. You've been sending in questions recently on everything from sorting out murky ponds to picking the most beautiful plants for pots by the front door. So let's join a team of advisors to get some answers. Hello, I'm Lee Hunt, and today for Gardening Questions, I'm joined by Charlotte Sweeney and Becky Mealy. Hi! Hiya! And today we're here to answer your questions. Our first question comes from Alison, and she's from Ashford in Kent. Can the panel suggest any evergreen flowering shrubs for two large containers in the south-facing position beside my front door? Right! We've got something right by the front door, so we need something impressive. Charlotte, have you got any ideas for this? I think I'd probably go for a Ceanothus, a relatively upright small one. So maybe something like Skylark or Concha, which can be lightly pruned to keep it a nice compact shape. But they are impressive. They are the most impressive shrub, in my opinion. So May, June, you get that fantastic flower, bright blue, and the relatively deep, glossy green evergreen. So nice and neat and well-behaved the rest of the time. Becky, what would you add to that? Well, I mean, I quite like a structural evergreen plant. So instead of having like a big wild flower, just something that looks good all year round. So I quite like an Osmanthus crossbook woody eye that can be clipped and, and shaped into quite a nice shape. It does have a pretty little white flower that's scented, but they're very well behaved in a pot and very robust. And you can cloud prune them if you wanted to. Other ones, again, as a feature clipped ball, Pitosporums are really good. I quite like a, the golf ball is a nice green one, or you can have a purple one, which is Tom Thumb, which would be just something a bit different. I mean, obviously, that's great because something like Tom Thumb's got the foliage colour, even though it doesn't have flowers. I'd also gone down the scented line and I was thinking about winter scent. The Christmas box, particularly the Sarcococca hookeriana, now that one has red stems as well. So you get these long green leaves, red stems, and then come around Christmas time, isn't it? And then down into the spring so February time you get these wonderful wafts of intense scent as you come up to the front door the next question is from Jodie Fitzhughes from Fulham a bed consisting of Rosa caressia mixed with lavender augustifolia hidcote and the Rosa caressia has been showing a few worrying signs of leaf discoloration where the veins of some of the leaves have turned yellow and the rest of the plant remains green. So I was wondering if this was some kind of fungal disease and how best to treat the problem and stop it from spreading. Becky, fungal diseases, do, do they look like that? No, no, that sounds like it's a little bit deficient in something. I think it's potentially deficient in magnesium because that's the key signs with the yellowing in between the veins. But the thing with roses is you often put a high potash feed on them to get plenty of flowers. 
but this then can lock up the magnesium in the soil so then the plants get a deficiency in magnesium so you guess it with things like tomatoes my tomatoes showing a little bit at the moment and other heavy feeding plants like rhododendrons so it's like very typical of magnesium deficiency and roses they're very heavy feeders they need that magnesium so overall this should be sortable yeah, I, you know, a good dose of Epsom salts never did a plant any harm. So, you know, a foliar feed of Epsom salts, um, making sure you do not on a sunny day so you're not going to cause any more scorching. The roses will be very grateful. This question comes from Jasmine Ackwell from Surrey. I have a crispy wave fern which appears to both look dry and too wet. Am I watering it incorrectly and what might be going on? It has a few brown patches sort of halfway across the leaves. It sounds like it could be a humidity problem. Ferns, especially in houses, well, houses are very dry atmospheres. A lot of plants that kind of like like that nice jungle cultivation with where you've got like moist air. So the pot can sit wet, but because the atmosphere is dry, you get the dry patches on the leaves. So just by misting daily or maybe even having sat on a tray of damp gravel, so it's not sat in the water, it's just above that damp gravel, that can increase the humidity. Or maybe just even choose a different room for it to be sat in, so bathrooms are damper and so are kitchens, more humid. And we have a whole episode on ferns that you can listen to now on the RHS website. We have a question from Charlie and Josie. Hi there, we've just moved from London to the Cotswolds and in our new house we've got a lovely big duck pond. It's currently a little bit murky and we'd really like to clear the water so that in a few months or maybe next year we can have some wildlife and maybe some fish in the water. We don't want to add anything too strong chemical-wise, so are there any slightly more natural solutions you can recommend for clearing our pond water? So, Charlotte, murky water, is that a problem and what can they do about it? It's most likely not a problem. I expect it's probably just weather conditions, sort of a lot of growth of algae, especially if the pond hasn't been cared for in the period between the the last owner selling it and then moving in. I think I'd start by simply using one of the more sort of eco products that are available. So you can buy extract of barley straw, which would be a good option for clearing up the algae or loads of different proprietary ones are on the market. So kind of eco sludge remover type products. You can get pellets or, or a liquid that you'd add. And that should tell you if it is just an algae type problem. But I'd also think about just starting a really good regime of pond maintenance. So netting or or removing leaves in the autumn when they fall. If there's any marginal pond plants, making sure that you're removing stems and deadheading before they get a chance to fall in. If there's a bad case of sort of blanket weed or duckweed, starting to net that out to improve the water. But I expect it is just a, a sort of algae problem, which is easily treatable. Good advice there from Charlotte. There certainly do seem to be more green ponds about this year. I think it's due to the wet winter washing nutrients into the pond, followed by a dry spring that prevented the rain topping up the pond. And finally, hot sunny weather earlier in the year. All this has led to a boom in algae and difficulties for pond owners. If you need an answer to a fawny gardening conundrum, then we'd love to hear from you. It's really easy. 
Just record yourself asking a question using your phone or tablet and email it to us at podcast at rhs.org.uk. For more information on the topics discussed today, go to our programme page at rhs.org.uk slash podcast. That's it for this week. So from me, Guy Barter, it's goodbye. Thanks for listening. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilise the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.